We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Get my feet out. Okay, I'm out. Really looks funny out there to see my glove out there, Jim. Jimmy Moore, get back in. Okay. Good morning, Gordo. Yes, how are you? How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? By cooperating together in these new realms of infinity. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 61 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. I recommend listening to episode 60 before you listen to this episode. And now, Jiminy Four with James McDivitt and Edward White, First American Spacewalk, Part 2. When we left off episode 60, EVA was finally officially added to the Jiminy Four flight plan. Another key goal of the Gemini program was to perform a rendezvous. This was to be accomplished with the Atlas Agena. Until the Atlas Agena was ready, the rendezvous could be practiced with the rendezvous evaluation pod, but it was not available for the Gemini 4 mission. However, with a little creative thinking, there was something that might be used instead of the evaluation pod. The idea formulated in the minds of Robert Gilruth and George Lowe. During the Gemini 3 mission, they overheard Gordon Cooper on the communications link to Gus Grissom. This is the transcript of the conversation they overheard. Cooper, I have time for when you'll be nearest the second stage booster. Would you like to have that so you can look for it? Grissom, Roger. Cooper, Roger, 02 plus 08 plus 52 will be dead ahead at an elevation of plus 80 degrees at zero niner miles. This will be just prior to darkness. Should be very bright. Proceed if you can see to rendezvous. Gilruth and Lowe thought it sounded like a pretty good idea. Lowe checked with the Gemini Project Office and crew systems and got an affirmative response. With Gilroof's wholehearted support, in May 1965, station keeping joined EVA as part of the Gemini 4 flight plan. The spacecraft would match velocities with the orbiting second stage, a relatively short distance away and in the same orbital plane, and maintain that position for a time. If the rendezvous was successful, White could use his zip gun to propel him over near the floating stage. You may recall from Gemini 3, Gus Grissom had successfully maneuvered his capsule. However, he had no target. Closing in on a specific object or point in space was much more ambitious, especially since McDivitt and White would have to depend on their eyes to track the target since the rendezvous radar was still unavailable. The Martin Company did install flashing lights on the Gemini Launch Vehicle 4 second stage to help the crew find it. However, McDivitt and White had still another handicap. There was simply no way for them to train on the ground for station keeping. Neither the CAPE nor the Houston simulator was designed for this task. 
McDonald came through by rigging equipment to provide a simulated view of the target against a star background. McDivitt and Borman spent half a day in St. Louis practicing orbital rendezvous, but it was makeshift at best. Another major problem confronting Gemini 4 planners was the physiological consequences of a prolonged stay in orbit and of EVA. Charles A. Berry, medical director of the Gemini program, was troubled by the leap of faith implied by the Gemini flight schedule of April 1963, which followed the three-orbit Gemini 3 with a seven-day Gemini 4 mission. He wanted the length of the mission reduced by half, and the trouble with fuel cell development helped him get his way. With fuel cells not ready, the batteries would have to be used. Therefore, the mission could not last more than four days. In August 1964, it was decided that Gemini 4 would be a four-day mission, not only for medical reasons, but also because the fuel cells would have to be replaced by batteries. Still, Dr. Berry was not happy even with a four-day mission. Cardiovascular problems had cropped up in the last two Mercury missions, and every physiologist he met made the same comment about Gemini 4. The comment was, Don't you really know that these guys are going to stand up and pass out and might indeed die from this flight? The astronauts would be subjected to much the same kind of physiological strain as that imposed by prolonged bed rest, followed by vigorous activity. After their bodies had been deconditioned by days of weightless flight, they had to face high re-entry G-forces which might well cause them to faint. If an astronaut fainted during or after landing, he would be held upright by his harness, forcing a perhaps already overtaxed heart to work even harder pumping blood to his head. But astronauts were not bed patients. Besides, Using their muscles for flight tasks, they would also be exercising with a bungee cord, a device adapted from a nylon strap and the handle of a spear gun that required a force of 300 newtons to extend it 30 centimeters. EVA added still another medical concern, the disorientation and motion sickness that might overtake a floating astronaut unable to distinguish up from down. According to Russian reports early in May 1965, Leonov had trouble with his vision and orientation. Dr. Barry, McDivitt, and White studied a filmed interview with scenes of the spacewalk, which clearly showed Leonov using numerous reference points, the sun, the spacecraft, and the earth, to maintain orientation. That seemed to be the best answer for the astronaut to make sure he knew where he was at all times in relation to the spacecraft. So from a medical point of view, some degree of tension marked the approach of the Gemini 4 mission. This was, after all, the first four-day flight by the Americans, and the Russians were airing their fears of disorientation and physiological dangers at numerous medical conferences. But the crew was trained, and everything that could be foreseen had been considered. There was nothing to do now but wait to see what happened. Here's an audio clip of the final flight plan. 
In America's first long-duration mission, Gemini 4 would complete 62 revolutions. The flight plan called for the spacecraft to be inserted into orbit at 32.5 degrees north latitude at 185 statute miles in altitude over Bermuda. People were already adding a new word to their vocabularies, EVA. It stood for extravehicular activity. Some were uncertain whether you said EVA or EVA, but regardless of the pronunciation, it would become an abbreviation of our time. The flight plan called for EVA to begin on the second orbit. Somewhere over Hawaii, the pilot was to open the hatch of a depressurized cabin and stand up. Over the west coast of the United States, he would leave the spacecraft and expose himself to space. For 12 minutes, he would perform maneuvers over the United States. He would return to Gemini 4 and continue the mission as the spacecraft neared the night side of the Earth over the Atlantic. This was the flight plan. Now on to the launch. Television coverage of the launch for the first time had an international audience as the scene was broadcast to 12 European nations via Intelsat 1, a.k.a. the early bird satellite of episode 59. Heightened by the prospect of an EVA and the first use of the new Mission Control Center in Houston, interest in Gemini 4 reached levels never again matched in the Gemini program. The Manned Spacecraft Center faced a major challenge in the number of reporters who wanted to cover the story from Houston. Although MSC's Building 1 Auditorium had been designed to house all large events covered by the news and television services, its 800 seats fell short of the space that would be needed to accommodate the 1,100 requests for accreditation. To meet the demand, MSC leased one of the new buildings springing up across the highway from the center for local offices of aerospace companies and that move came under fire from the local press when its cost was revealed. Besides the $96,165 a year rent, MSC spent $166,000 for modifications, $8,000 for television monitors, and $6,600 for 610 chairs. But Building 6, housing the NASA Gemini News Center, served its purpose well as the base for 1,068 newspaper, magazine, radio, and television representatives, as well as 60 public relations people from industry. It opened on May 25th, somewhat earlier than the customary five days before launch of the Mercury Project. About 12 hours before Gemini 4's scheduled liftoff on June 3, 1965, the Martin crew started fueling the booster and calibrating its propellant loads. Borman and Lovell, the backup crew, flipped spacecraft switches, tested communication circuits, and handled other chores to relieve the prime crew. McDivitt and White had gone to bed at 8.30 the night before. Awakened at 4.10 a.m., they were given a brief physical examination. The astronauts left their Merritt Island quarters after breakfast and boarded a van for the ride to Pad 16 suit-up area, where they were helped into their suits while breathing pure oxygen to get the nitrogen out of their systems and thus prevent the bends. Although Gemini Titan IV was to be his first space flight, Ed White stated, quote, 
I do feel entirely safe in a spacecraft, end quote. Ed, a devout Methodist, brought three special items to carry with him during his planned EVA. First, a St. Christopher's medal. Second, a gold cross. And third, a star of David. White stated, quote, I had great faith in myself, and especially in Jim, and also I think I had great faith in my God. So the reason I took these symbols was that I think this was the most important thing I had going for me, and I felt that while I couldn't take one for every religion in the country, I could take the three I was most familiar with, end quote. McDivitt and White arrived at Pad 19 at 7.07 a.m. They rode up the elevator and climbed into their spacecraft at T-100 minutes. Getting in was relatively easy, but even so, White's face place fogged. He started his suit fan and cleared up the moisture. Here's the clip. The crew enters the spacecraft. The hatches are sealed. 7.32 Eastern Standard Time. The crew is now a countdown. They begin checking out the spacecraft systems. It is T minus 100 minutes. The launch vehicle and spacecraft continue the clean count, interrupted only by a bulky erector which didn't want to lower properly. That cost us some time but presented no serious problem. At T minus 30 minutes, the pad was cleared. Now there is just a spacecraft, launch vehicle, and two men on top of it. Thirty-five minutes before the scheduled launch, while the erector was being lowered, it stuck at a 12-degree angle from the booster. Raised to its full height, then lowered again, the erector got stuck again. After more than an hour, technicians found a connector incorrectly installed in a junction box. They replaced it properly and gave the signal to lower the erector. This time it worked. Space travel was becoming operational. This hold, lasting one hour, 16 minutes, was the only delay for Gemini 4. In contrast, on Mercury Redstone 4, the second manned launch in that program, Grissom's Liberty Bell was scrubbed twice and was plagued by six holes that totaled four hours and one minute. At 10.16 a.m. Thursday, June 3, 1965, millions of people throughout the world looked and listened while Gemini 4 lunged spaceward. Here's the clip. All systems are good at this time. The launch control at the Cape. T-minus 10 minutes and counting. Six minutes before launch. The spacecraft test conductor signed off to the spacecraft with these final words. Okay, Jim, have a good flight.
Colorado, good on mod three, a little high. Jim McDivitt reports Gemini four is go for staging, which will occur in a very few seconds. Just go. We have staging, and it's been confirmed here on the ground. This looks good. In the spacecraft, McDivitt and White had no doubts about liftoff, as they felt their vehicle pick up speed. There was very little noise. The hush was broken only when the launch vehicle bounced like a pogo stick for a few seconds. Then everything smoothed into near silence again. Pyrotechnics shattered the illusion of quiet at stage one and later at stage two separation. The spacecraft entered an elliptical orbit of 163 kilometers perigee and 282 kilometers apogee. As Gemini 4 separated from Stage 2, the next immediate goal was to achieve station keeping with the booster. McDivitt turned the spacecraft around to look for the trailing vehicle. White saw the rocket venting with propellant streaming from its nozzle. McDivitt estimated the distance as 120 meters, while White guessed it was closer to 75 meters. McDivitt braked the spacecraft aimed it, and thrust toward the target. After two bursts from his thrusters, the booster seemed to move away and downward. A minute later, McDivitt pitched the spacecraft nose down, and the crew again saw the rocket, which seemed to be traveling on a different track. He thrust down toward it without success and stopped. McDivitt repeated the sequence several times with the same result. As night approached, McDivitt spotted the booster's flashing lights. He estimated that the distance to the target had stretched to perhaps 600 meters. He knew he had to catch the booster quickly if they were going to station keep and do extravehicular activity as planned. For a while, Gemini 4 seemed to be holding its own and even closing with the other vehicle. McDivitt thought they got to within 60 meters, but White estimated it 260 to 300 meters. The target's running lights soon grew dim in the gray streaks of dawn and vanished with the sunrise. When the target came into view about three to five kilometers away, McDivitt again tried to close the distance. Additional thrusting did not seem to bring it any closer. Well aware that he was a pioneer in orbital rendezvous and that choosing the right maneuvers might not be as easy as it seemed, McDivitt asked Mission Director Kraft, which was more important, rendezvous or EVA? The spacewalk said Kraft. McDivitt knew he had to stop spending fuel chasing the elusive target using the eyeball method. Here's the clip. The mission director now checked the status of a possible rendezvous. Ask him about his track with the launch vehicle. Right, I have it decided this time it's directly below me about the Everything seemed favorable at that time, but as the first orbit progressed, the second stage of the launch vehicle drew away. Roger, Grimace. Uh, we still have the booster. We're out quite a ways from it now. Uh, it's taken a little more fuel than we had anticipated. To really make a major effort to close this last thing or to save the fuel? The answer was almost immediate from the mission director. I tell him, uh, as far as we're concerned, we want to save the fuel. We're concerned about the lifetime when we are matching that booster. Okay. And that was it.
After the flight, Jiminy Project Office Engineer Andre Meyer explained what went wrong with the rendezvous. He said, Catching a target in orbit is a game played in a different ballpark than catching something on Earth, which is essentially a two-dimensional surface. Speed and motion in orbit do not conform to Earth-based habit, except at very close ranges. To catch something on the ground, one simply moves as quickly as possible in a straight line to the place where the object will be at the right time. As Gemini 4 showed, that will not work in orbit. Adding speed also raises the altitude, moving the spacecraft into a higher orbit than its target. The proper technique is for the spacecraft to reduce its speed, dropping to a lower and thus shorter orbit, which will allow it to gain on the target. At the correct moment, a burst of speed will lift the spacecraft to the target's orbit close enough to the target to eliminate virtually all relative motion between them. Once on station keeping, the spacecraft can approach the target directly. The problem was compounded by Gemini 4's limited fuel supply. The fuel tanks were only half the size of later Gemini models, and the fuel had to be conserved for the failsafe maneuvers. When McDivitt and White broke off their futile chase, they had exhausted nearly half of their fuel. During the rendezvous attempt, White had been too busy helping his crewmate to give much thought to getting ready for EVA. As Gemini 4 began its second revolution, McDivitt and White started to go through the checklist for the various EVA equipment. Within the cramped confines of the spacecraft, they unpacked White's emergency oxygen chest pack, his specially designed thermal gloves, and the bulky 25-foot combination primary oxygen umbilical and tether cord. The 7 and one pound maneuvering unit was unstowed and checked. The camera equipment, which would record White's historic walk, was assembled. The astronauts wanted to be very meticulous in their AVA preparations because it was America's first step into space, and they wanted to be sure that the procedures were done thoroughly and correctly. With 20 minutes still to go before cabin depressurization, Commander McDivitt noticed that co-pilot White already looked tired and hot, and he felt he needed a rest. McDivitt made the call to wait until the third orbit for the EVA. A disappointed Ed White eventually concurred. White later recalled that he and McDivitt decided to start the checklist over again, this time without rushing. While they relaxed, the crewmen talked with Grissom, the Houston Capcom, about the view of the Gulf of Mexico and all of Florida, including the Cape and its launch complexes. After a 15-minute break, McDivitt picked up the list and White began checking suit and hose locks and suit integrity. The flight planners had certainly not foreseen how much time getting ready for EVA would take. During the third revolution, the crew received a go-ahead for both decompression and EVA. Nearing Australia, they began to depressurize the cabin. Then a mechanical problem arose. The door would not unlatch because a spring had failed to compress. After much yanking and poking around the hatch ratchet, the door suddenly cracked open. 
White found the hatch as hard to push up in zero-g as it had been on the ground. As Ed White stood in his seat preparing for egress, he checked his camera equipment three times. He wanted to make sure he didn't leave the lens cap on. At 2.45 p.m. as Gemini 4 passed beyond Hawaii, Ed White emerged from the hatch and installed a camera to record his movements. White recalled that when he departed the spacecraft, there was no need to push off. The manned maneuvering unit, or zip gun, actually provided the impulse to leave the spacecraft. White relayed that he did not experience any disorientation or sensation that he was falling in spite of the fact that Gemini 4 was whipping through space at speeds in excess of 17,500 miles per hour. White felt very little sensation of speed. White, a photography buff, then turned his attention to capturing the spectacular views he was witnessing on film. White remarked that he could see the whole California coast. While he snapped away with his 35mm camera, McDivitt took photos of White as he came into full view of the window. As he maneuvered away, Ed accidentally bumped into the spacecraft, leaving a mark on McDivitt's window. The world delighted in hearing the banter between the two friends, as Jim stated, You smeared my windshield, you dirty dog. You see how it's all smeared up there? End quote. White's suit held up well, and the special helmet visor provided the necessary protection from the sun. White noted that the sun in space was not blinding, but quite nice in appearance. The entire spacewalk was progressing extremely well. It was clear that White was enjoying himself thoroughly as he radioed, I'm very thankful in having the f- being the first to experience this. This is fun. While White was outside, a spare thermal glove floated away through the open hatch of the spacecraft, becoming an early piece of space debris in low Earth orbit. At a speed of 17,500 miles per hour, it became perhaps the most dangerous piece of clothing in history. Ed's final view during his spacewalk was of the state of Florida, He could see the lower parts of the state, the island chain of Cuba, and Puerto Rico. While he was floating free, White had paid no attention to time, and since they were on the internal spacecraft communications link, flight control could not break in on them. Finally, after 15 minutes, 40 seconds, McDivitt broke off to ask the ground if they wanted anything. Yes, Flight Director Kraft chuckled, tell him to get back in. No one was sorrier to see it in than Ed White. He commented that it was the saddest moment of his life. Without the benefit of the self-propulsion unit, Ed needed extra time to return to the hatch. But soon enough, McDivitt heard boots thumping on the spacecraft. White came back to the hatch as Gemini 4 was passing over the Atlantic, dismounted the camera, and removed the electrical connections and handed all those items to McDivitt along with the gun. McDivitt then helped White get settled, pulling on his legs and guiding his feet into the footwells. Here's the clip of the spacewalk. Sir, you ready to have him get out? 
Roger, flight, we're go. He's got some uh, nice elevated rates, which we expected, and uh, he's, he's really speeded it up, but he looks great. Let's go. Okay. Hawaii, Houston flight. Houston flight, Hawaii, Capcom, go. Tell him we're ready to have him get out when he is. Gemini 4, Hawaii, Capcom. We just had word from Houston. We're ready to have you get out whenever you're ready. Okay, we better go now, is that right? Affirmative. Okay, we're still doing a little work right here. Roger, understand. Get his status, Hawaii. Gemini 4, Hawaii, Capcom. Okay, I'm separated from the spacecraft. Okay, separated from the spacecraft this time, Hawaii. Okay, my feet are out. Okay, my feet are out. I think I'm dragging a little bit, so I don't want to fire the gun yet. Okay, I'm out. Okay, he's out. He's close to free. Okay, I put a little roll in, took it right out. Okay. I in your view, Jimbo? Yeah, you know, I can't see it on the screen. Don't slow it, I'll come over to you. Whoops, there's your club, now we're just going to go. All right. Okay, I rolled off, I'm rolling to the right now. It's under my own influence. There goes a... Looks like a thermal blast, Jim. It is, yes. Alright. Now I've come about the spacecraft. I'm coming back down now. I'm under my own control. Okay, I'm coming over. You look beautiful. I feel like a million dollars. I'm coming back to you. The gun, the gun works real good, Jim. Yeah. Well, I got, got me upside down. I, okay, don't fire the thrust. Make that flag look pretty. Yep. Okay, I'm right by the I'm right by the front antenna now. Okay. Let me let me get some motion there. I ought to be getting some tremendous pressure value. Let me try again with the hot one. Okay, I think I've exhausted my okay. air now. Stay right there. I had very good control with it. I just needed more air. Okay, stand by. Let me take a couple pictures. All right. Tell what you think. That's right. Capcom, it's very easy to maneuver with the gun. The only problem I have is I haven't got enough fuel. I've exhausted the fuel now, but I was able to maneuver myself out front of the spacecraft back. I maneuvered right up back on the back of the adapter. Just above Jim, came back into his view. This is the greatest experience. I've, it's just tremendous. Right now, I'm standing on my head, and I'm looking right down. It looks like we're coming up on the coast of California. As I go in a slow rotation to the right. There is absolutely no disorientation associated with it. One thing about it, when it gets out there and starts wiggling around, it sure makes the spacecraft tough to control. Okay, I'm drifting down underneath the spacecraft. There's no difficulty with uh, me contacting the spacecraft. It's all very soft. Particularly as long as you move nice and slow. I feel very thankful to have the experience to be doing this. I'll bring myself in and put myself out in your future.
Are you taking pictures? Okay, do you want me to maneuver for you now, Ed? No, I think you're doing fine. What I'd like to do is get all the way out, Jim, and get a picture of the whole space camp. I don't seem to be doing that. Yeah, I noticed that. You can't seem to get far enough away. No. Texas, remote your air to ground. California, go local. I'm coming back down on the spacecraft. Listen, it's all the difference in the world with this gun. When that gun was working, I was maneuvering all around. Just for your information, Ed, we're only down to 48% on our O2. Okay. He's got uh, O2 pressure is about 830, so stay right up there. Let me get a picture of it. Can you see the camera here? Uh, yeah. No, not now. I'm out of it. Yeah, you got about five minutes. I will let myself go out now. Jiminy 4, Houston. You know, Ed, the thing about the reference you were talking about looks like it's your right. They don't even need one. Jiminy 4, Houston, Capcom. Gosh, this is Jim. Uh, what, got any message for us? The flight director says get back in. Right. Okay. Okay. One. Where are we over now, Jim? I don't know. We're coming over to the west, west end. They want you to come back in now. Back in? Back in. Roger. We've been trying to talk to you for a while here. Coming in. you got about four minutes to Bermuda LOS. Some experts have contended that the delay in getting back in the capsule was an indication that Ed had suffered some form of narcosis of the deep, or euphoria. However, Ed insisted this was not the case. White said, quote, I can say in all sincerity and honesty that I enjoyed the EVA very much and I was sorry to see it draw to a close, and I was indeed reluctant to come in. But when the word came that the EVA phase was over, I knew it was time to come in, and I did. There was no euphoria, but getting back in the cabin took just as much time as getting out. I had to do the same things, only in reverse order, handing my gear into Jim and so on. End quote. Once White got back in the capsule, he closed the hatch and reached for the handle to lock it. When it failed to catch, he knew it was going to be as hard to close as it had been to open. Pushing on the handle lifted White out of his seat, so McDivitt pulled on him to give him some leverage. Finally, White felt a little torque in the handle and yelled for McDivitt to yank harder. The door was latched. Here's the clip. Inside the spacecraft, the crew was faced with a problem. The hatch would not close. That day in St. Louis, when McDivitt took apart the locking mechanism, now paid off. The hatch finally closed. White sat back, physically exhausted, sweat streaming into his eyes and fogging his faceplate. McDivitt also felt tired, so they rested before extending a radio antenna to find a ground station and tell Earth all was well. Australia answered them. The crew of Gemini 4 had almost circled the globe in an unpressurized spacecraft. While White relaxed, McDivitt began powering down some of the spacecraft systems to save electrical power and control fuel intending to drift for the next two and a half days. Seven and a half hours after liftoff, White went to sleep. 
he had achieved his goal of becoming the first man to propel himself in space. In addition, his spacewalk had lasted twice as long as Leonov's ten-minute excursion. Ed White had felt many things during those twenty minutes, but the biggest thing was a feeling of accomplishment. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.